This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. It's 1938, and that crash you is Dinosaurs, Leopards, and Loons. Oh my. The movie? Bringing up a baby. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the show where we watch one of the films from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list and talk about them to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films we watch today? And this week, we are talking about bringing up baby. Or that's the way that uh, I guess Kawhi Leonard would say it, but it's just uh, bringing a baby. Uh, You're Clipper be Nation, so insufferable in basketball season. Oh, starts. Clipper Nation, represent. Uh, no, um, this is a, a one of the rare comedies on the list. But before we get into that, Amy, let's go back in time and talk a little bit about Pulp Fiction, which the response was really interesting online. It was, you know, I asked kind of the open-ended question for people who weren't in the immediate Pulp Fiction generation, where this yeah. movie was just shot into our veins like heroin, how does it play? And I heard from a lot of people, especially like people in their 20s, who were like, I saw it and I think it should be on the list. I saw it and I think this film was great. I This was one of the first films I saw when I was a kid who thought, I want to be interested in movies. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting response, that there that it still clicked for people, even though I was worried it might feel maybe dated or something. It's interesting. We talked about it last week, too. The idea that the film is a bit timeless. You know, it, it doesn't, even though it is when it was made, it's it's not a period piece per se, but the characters are so kind of heightened and the world is so different that... I think that that's why this movie kind of exists as long as it has. I mean, in, in a way, isn't every one of Quentin Tarantino's films a period piece? And this, you know, I mean, Reservoir Dogs and this, they kind of exist in their own world. I say Reservoir Dogs is probably the most closely associated with the world that we live in. But I think Pulp Fiction is the beginning of like getting out of it. Yeah, I wonder if maybe what keeps this movie feeling like it holds up is it also feels like a 50s movie at parts. It also feels mm-hmm. like a 70s movie at parts. 
And I got to say, people really loved my rock and roll suitcase theory. Uh, Corey Ullman says that Travolta is Elvis because he died on the toilet. And I thought that was a great uh, uh, piece of connective tissue there. Uh, Yeah, a few people pointed out this theory that I've heard about how what does it mean whenever John Travolta goes to the bathroom? Whenever he goes to the bathroom, something major happens. The movie Mm. always takes a shift. Somebody gets robbed. Uma Thurman does heroin. He gets shot. I mean, that there is this connection between him and the bathroom stall and disaster. That is interesting. Yeah, I love that. Um, People also brought up something that was um, interesting that I didn't know, that the role that Quentin Tarantino played was originally written for Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi couldn't do it because he was doing Airheads, which I believe is number 17 on the AFI list. 16. Oh, 16, right. And um, But it's interesting, you know, you could kind of hear the cadence of Buscemi in that part. Um, I just thought that was an interesting casting thing. I didn't know. And it's it makes sense because there are all these great Reservoir Dogs cameos throughout the film. And he, uh, you know, obviously is Buddy Holly, but that would have been an, a really interesting scene as well. That's true. And, you know, I think it's important before we close out our Pulp Fiction-ness to read this comment that came from Fabian. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Fabian says... I was a gay teenager in the 90s. This was basically the first depiction of gay sex in cinema for me and my classmates, and it taught them that gay men were pervert rapists with gimps who deserved to get killed. I would kick it off the list in a heartbeat. Mm. And that's a perspective I hadn't considered before, so I was really glad that Fabian brought that to my attention and, you know, and typed that out to share with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, all these films, we talked about it last week too, they push certain buttons. There are things that I think you know, as we continue to grow as a culture and, and make these changes, you know, how to be responsible and, and and kind of showing characters. You can still have scenes like this, but maybe be a little bit more responsible and caring to kind of put it out into the world. It's true. I think it's important for all of us to not just sit in the comfort that what we think is okay today will always be okay. Yeah. And it's not saying kick it all off the list. It's not saying erase anything. I, I you know somebody tweeted at us, you know, about our conversation about Jimmy, you know, it's like, well, it's a character. It's just a character. It's not a real thing. It's like, well, yeah, but this is a conversation to be had. It's not, uh, it's not like it's gone because of that, but it's it's worth noting. I think we started off this whole podcast when we talked about, you know, the uh, Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire number. Like, it's like, well, if we're going to watch it, we got to address it. And th- and that's and I think that's the only way to kind of to look at these films and, and just have the conversation. It's true. And I will say, I think it is interesting and maybe just worth laying out there, maybe for listeners to interpret, to see what you what you make of this. But for something like swing time, I think we got a lot of responses saying because of the blackface, it should just be gone straight up, like nothing. Mm-hmm. And that was not the response for Pulp Fiction, right? And I find that really interesting. And I don't, I can't even say that I feel like I know why, why there's a gap. But I think there is sort of a gap there that I, I can't really reconcile. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, who knows? But um, it was great to talk to you about that. And now we're going to get into talking about bringing up baby, a movie that. I was not familiar with, and a lot of our listeners weren't either. We asked them to call in and tell us what they thought the plot of the movie was. I think it's a prequel to Dirty Dancing, where they're really showing how Baby came to be, and it ends with them getting to the resort. I think Bringing Up Baby is about Catherine Hepburn performing a seance to summon the spirit of the child she lost during delivery. I believe what happens is Catherine Hepburn loses her baby in a well, and 
Cary Grant is the fireman who goes down to get her. Bringing up babies about an alligator that swallows an infant whole and is forced by Catherine Hepburn to vomit it back out again. I believe Bringing Up Baby is the sequel to Million Dollar Baby, where after she becomes a paraplegic, there's a heartwarming tale of teaching her to walk again. The tagline is, sometimes baby falls down. Sometimes you gotta bring them back up. Oh, man. If this movie was any of these, I'm kind of excited. I mean, a prequel to Dirty Dancing, I would have loved that. Or Million Dollar Baby. Sequel to Million Dollar Baby, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, I love that it's purely baby specific. Uh, could this also be uh, maybe a prequel to Boss Baby? Bringing up Boss Baby? If you're going to rag on Boss Baby, I'm out of here right now. Hey, hey. I like Boss Baby. Okay, me too. <laughs> All right, Amy, let's get into it. Let's talk about Bringing Up Baby. The year is 1938. Samsung opens its doors as a grocery store. A woman is jailed for five days for showing up to court in slacks. And Time Magazine's Man of the Year is Adolf Hitler. Uh, new inventions include the ballpoint pen, Nescafe freeze-dried coffee, and chocolate chip cookies. Orson Welles' radio broadcast, War of the World, sends listeners into a panic as they believe that aliens had actually landed in New Jersey. DC Comics pays a whopping $130 for the exclusive rights to Superman. And audiences are watching The Adventures of Robin Hood, You Can't Take It With You, Jezebel, and today's film, Bringing Up Baby. It comes in number 88 on the 2007 AFI list. That's up nine points from its standing at 97 on the 1997 list. Amy, Bringing Up Baby, who's in it? What's it about? Bringing Up Baby. It is about a woman who's actually very comfortable wearing pants. And if you try to arrest her, she'll talk her way out of it. <laughs> uh, you have Catherine Hepburn as rich heiress, dizzy dame, Susan Vance, who falls in love pretty much at first sight with Cary Grant. As an archaeologist named Dr. David Huxley, he's engaged already to a girl named Alice, but they go on this madcap adventure, ostensibly in pursuit of convincing her aunt to give him a million dollars so he can build his big old dinosaur with a whole lot of bones. But madcap adventures ensue. Amy, this movie is the definition, in my mind, of a screwball comedy. I mean, when I was watching it, I was like, Catherine Hepburn is doing Marx Brothers level... Yes. That's what work. I was thinking too. Right? Yeah, she's straight up Marx Brothersing it. She's I was like, like, she's Chico. Yeah, she's like, I'm gonna talk in my own logic. Anything you say that disagrees with me, I'm just gonna not even acknowledge it. It's gonna we're gonna have our own conversation. We're gonna play with words. We're gonna play with logic. She cannot be contained the way that I actually felt like also Groucho does too. There's a lot in here where it's almost like Cary Grant is say the Margaret Dumont stuffed yes. shirt kind of figure, and she's the absolute figure of anarchy. I mean. What I was really blown away by was how adept Catherine Hepburn was at doing comedy. I was like, this, it really kind of blew me away. She seemed so effortless, but in doing some research, I found out it was a lot more studied than it appears. Yeah, it was either like studied or unstudied, I guess, depending on how you want to see it. Because she came into this, a giant comedy performance, being a comedian, being like, ha ha, wackadoo, yeah. yuck, yuck, yuck. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What, what, who's a comedian who does it in that style? It's the difference between like Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, which is big, broad, and I know there's other examples, but a big, broad character or someone doing something a little bit more real and grounded. I would argue, you know, Seth Rogen is in that mold or the Judd Apatow films are in that mold, you know. Um, exactly. Can, yeah. And so you kind of have to unlearn what you think a comedy is, which is what she did. Uh, the story goes that she was sort of 
yucking it up. I don't know why I keep saying yucking. I never even use that word no, in actual but I conversation. Think, I think was, when you lean into a joke, it it starts to feel broad, whereas her performance is broad. This is a broad, big character, but it feels grounded in the world that she's kind of created, if that makes sense. Exactly. And what kind of happened with the dynamic that created is that Howard Hawks was like, oh, God, she's doing this way too big. I need her to take it back like 12 notches. And what happened is he brought in a buddy of his, this guy, Walter Catlett, who comes from vaudeville. He was like a Ziegfeld Follies guy. Mm -hmm. And Walter is like, hey, Catherine, let me take you aside. Just play it super straight. And for some reason, she decided to listen to him. She really bought it when it came from him. And then she said, I need this guy on set all the time. Hire him to be the constable. And he really got her dialed into this style of performance. But the thing is, I mean, you're watching this movie this year in the modern era. And you're like, man, Catherine Hepburn can do comedy. That's really surprising. The people who were watching this movie 80 years ago, they were like, Catherine Hepburn can do comedy? No way. And so a lot of people didn't go see the movie at the time. You know, this movie is a movie that tested well, but then performed badly and performed badly in New York City, like only played a week in Radio City Music Hall. It was a film that gained popularity, like a lot of films on this list, through airing on TV. People saw it on TV. It's and like a book smart. It's like the book smart of 1938. I Well, yeah. I mean, it, there is, I think, a, a, a big argument to be made that this list is based on films like this that kind of go over the head of the general populace. It wasn't what they were expecting. I would also want to just say, as we're talking about performing styles, I felt when I watched this, Cary Grant is the model for Christopher Reeve's Superman. Did you like everything that he did in this movie? I was like, oh, Christopher Reeve must have based his performance exactly on this. The glasses, the way he walks around, it... If you look at them side by side, it is a studied performance of Cary Grant in this movie. I I swear to God. I love that. I wonder if there's a moment where Christopher Reeve is like, that guy has a chin dimple. I have a chin dimple. He's got a good forelock. I've got a good forelock. This is my man. I'm going to do it. Well, if it's true, I think it's actually a very smart choice because when Christopher Reeve played Clark Kent, it was still funny. And Cary Grant in this movie is very funny, but he's very tight. It actually reminded me in many respects of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, a movie I've talked about on this podcast before. Like this idea of where both people are carrying the load. It's just not a, it like where Margaret Dumont reacted like, oh, I never. And, and she was fantastic in that role. But here, I think Cary Grant is also carrying the comedy as well. Like he is doing a funny performance. Yeah, let's actually just start off really early by hearing a bit of them bantering together. This Mm -hmm. is after the day they first meet. She's caused nothing but havoc in his life. She's stolen his golf ball. She's stolen his car. She's crushed his hat. He's ripped her dress. She's ripped his tux. He's trying to say goodbye for the very, very final time. And you can get a real sense of their dynamic. Now, just a moment, Susan. Don't think that I don't appreciate all you've done. Oh, it was nothing, David, really. Just a moment. But there are limits to what a man can bear. And besides that, tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to get married. (laughs) <laughs> what for? Well, because... Be- <laughs> well, anyway, I'm going to get married, Susan, and don't interrupt. No. Now, my future wife has always regarded me as a man of some dignity. <laughs> Privately, I'm convinced that I have some dignity. Now, it isn't that I don't like you, Susan, because, after all, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn toward you, but, well, there haven't been any quiet moments. Our relationship has been a series of misadventures from beginning to end. So if you don't mind, I'll see Mr. Peabody alone and unarmed. Without me? Yes, without you and definitely without you. Now, Susan, I'm going to say good night. And I hope that I never set eyes on you again. Good night. 
I, I mean, it's so charming to watch that scene. I'm, I'm already back into this movie. It really is so kind of fast paced, but you, the banter is great in this film. It is. And you set up this idea of basically, here's a man with a stoic life that he's put together in exactly the right way, assembled this giant dinosaur skeleton of a life of what is reasonable and makes sense. And a woman just comes charging in to destroy it, like absolutely literally. And in these screwball comedies, it really is the sense of a world of order disrupted by now the woman. It's all, it is it's it is like the Marx Brothers, but it's also the reversal. Now it's the woman who is completely the chaos agent. And by the way, this is a movie that spawns I mean, so many movies. We talk about this, like, you know, from Garden State to Along Came Polly, Grumpy Old Men, Pretty Woman, you know, uh, Who's That Girl, Runaway Bride. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. It's like this free-spirited woman comes into uh, a man's life at the precipice when he, you know, after hours, right? It's like this, you know, he thinks everything, he's got it all figured out, his life is boring, it's stayed, and she enlivens him. And, you know, it's become a staple of our cinema. I mean, it, like this is a a type of film. It has, but what I really like about this one, even in comparison to some of those like Garden State, dude. I like okay, you just name check Garden State. Is that Catherine Hepburn is doing it on purpose? She's like, I'm right. gonna destroy your life. She's not just some magical little fairy, and he's like, I must chase you and have you. She's like, Oh, this guy, I got you, because it's Cary Grant, and Cary Grant is the guy who just. Women love, and in all his movies, women are like that guy. It, it, it think about Clark Gable. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Clark Gable a couple weeks ago. Clark Gable is a dude who walks into the room, and he's like, "Woman, you're gonna be mine." Right. And woman's like, "Okay." And Cary Grant is the guy who's sitting in the room, and the woman comes in, and she's like, "Carrie, you're gonna be mine." And he's like, "Oh God, really?" Yeah, he's a little bit nervous about it. I mean, he is the person who would ask you. Before he kissed you, where as Clark Gable would just put one on you, regardless of how, you know, you felt or he felt. It was like, I'm doing it because I want to. And and I'm a fan of Cary Grant's films. I've seen a bunch. I don't think I've ever seen this film, but this is, I think, one of my favorite comedic performances of his. Uh, it's, it's true, because he usually is almost even more straight than this. Yes. Here is the straight man, but he's been ultra straight. Like, he's he's the one who's in this very, very famous Mae West scene that came five years before this that I feel like we should play. Okay. I always did like a man in a uniform. That one fits you grand. Why don't you come up sometime, see me? I'm home every evening. Yeah, but I'm busy every evening. Busy? So what are you trying to do, insult me? No, no, not at all. I'm just busy, that's all. You see, we're holding meetings in Jacobson's Hall every evening. Anytime you have a moment to spare, I'll be glad to have you drop in. You're more than welcome. I heard you. (laughs) But you ain't kidding me any. You know, I met your kind before. Why don't you come up sometime, huh? Well, I... Don't be afraid, I won't tell. But, uh... Come up, I'll tell your fortune. Ah, you can be had. You can be had. You can be had. But there's something about that portrayal even there. He's not as innocent. And I think the flustered nature of him really endears me to him. It reminds me again... Going back to my first comparison of planes, trains, and automobiles, but Steve Martin does this really well. It, it, it's this: I'm trying to keep everything together, and and that is a very rare thing because Steve Martin is is a, a unique kind of comedic performer as well, and I feel like he really is tapping into it. But back to Catherine Hepburn, you're right; her performance in this it's smart, it's dumb, it's manipulative, it's you know I, I think it's even sexy in parts. It's it, it's a very 
she does everything in this movie, you know, and you buy it, you buy this thing. And, and I think the reason why this movie works so well is he plays, uh, Howard Hawks, uh, plays a lot of the film in a two shot. Like you see them together, they're long takes. So the dialogue is so rapid fire and it, um, it just, I don't know. I think it pulls you in a little bit more. I just, I noticed that a bunch of times, just like these long medium shots. That's true, because I feel like in so many of the comedies, especially in like a decade ago, it was just cut to a face, cut to right. a face, cut to a face, cut to a, cut to a face. But his dialogue was so fast. He was open-ish to improv. He was like, just pull the camera back. I don't want to deal with the cutting. Let's just watch these two people go. Well, I mean, talk about open improv. This movie goes so far over budget and and goes so far over shooting. And the 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 joke of it is, oh, well, the actors are having so much fun that they were just laughing all the time. But it seems to me that Howard Hawks was actually having a fun time making this movie. They said that he had like four scripts in hand because they had so many different rewrites. They're punching it up. He's going, well, let's get this line from this and let's get this line from that. You know, they're really covering their bases. And in many respects, the Howard Hawks style of directing feels very similar to the Judd Apatow style of directing or, or, or Paul Feig style of directing. The, the way that we're doing comedies now, which is like, let's get it all and then figure out what the best stuff is later. And and I think it really works in this film. And you have these like little moments that are ad-libbed. I mean, uh, you know, the one that I'm thinking of right now is when Cary Grant's in a negligee and, you know, he comes in and, you know, someone asks him about it and he goes, well, because I'm gay. And it's the first time, by the way, gay is used in uh, a film to like they a lot. Of, it's a debated, but whether or not it was used to represent homosexuality or whether it was just to be the traditional term. But I think most people believe that it was like the first time that was used to kind of represent. Yeah, you know, it's like this has been argued in so many ways. Like the argument I heard is that. Maybe people in the Midwest didn't know that it was right. gay in that term, but that people in Hollywood knew that it was gay in that term. So it kind of worked like in this refractory level. Right, because it didn't get pulled by the uh, the commission. It wasn't censored. Yeah, we should listen to that scene, actually, just because what I think is also great about it is the way Cary Grant is playing the scene. He's in this ridiculous frilly bathrobe with gigantic marabou kind of sleeves. Mm -hmm. And instead of amping up the joke, he just plays this very straight. He is just Cary Grant in a bathrobe. He doesn't sound like it hot the moment of himself in a feminine bathrobe. Yeah. He's just vaguely irritated that he has to wear it in the first place. Otherwise, exactly himself. Who are you? What? Who are you? What do you want? Well, who are you? I don't know. I'm not quite myself today. Well, you look perfectly idiotic in those clothes. These aren't my clothes. Well, where are your clothes? I've lost my clothes. Well, why are you wearing these clothes? Because I just went gay all of a sudden. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. But it's like, it's such a, it, it, you feel the frustration because everybody is like picking at everyone else and every one of these characters is unique and a little bit wacky and crazy. I mean, there's really no pure straight person in this film. Even, you know, the aunt, she's not straight. They're all, they've all got their own quirks. I mean, every single person, even down to the guys who are taking, uh, you know, the, uh, the leopard out to wherever they're taking the leopard to in New Jersey or Connecticut, you know, everyone's got their own little peculiar things. Yeah, I mean, I think it might have been Howard Ox when this movie was over and it wasn't the hugest financial hit. He was, he said, oh, maybe it's because everybody in this movie is completely nuts. And maybe I needed at least like to balance out the lunacy with some more sane people because he finds that even the sanest people like say, 
Alice, Cary Grant's mm-hmm. fiance, they're so sane, they're insane. I mean, this oh. is how he sets up this dichotomy in the movie about like, here's the one girl he's going to maybe marry. Here's the girl he should marry. Well, by the way, maybe marry. They are going to get married the next day when you hear it. By the way, weddings are so casual in these films that we've done. So they're many, so casual. I'm getting married tomorrow. It seems like everyone's getting married on a Wednesday morning. It's like there's no pomp and circumstance to it. And I was like, is that why there's, the rate of divorce is so high? People who are just so casually getting married at this point? I know. I mean, I, I think about that a lot because there's such this stereotype that modern era people yeah. get divorced like crazy. But whenever I read old Hollywood bi- biographies, everybody's like getting married and divorced like nothing all the time. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's a Tuesday. Get divorced. Go to Mexico. Marry this person. It's, I mean, it's, so, it's funny. so fascinating. It's fascinating how we've like misunderstood what happened in the past. But also, I kind of love it. I love this idea of casual, just go to the courthouse, get a done marriage. It seems so unstressful. It, by setting up his wife-to-be with her saying, like, there'll be no domestic entanglements of any kind. Like, like she's basically saying, we will never have sex. Like, And it's like, that's how we're introduced. Like, it's one of the first lines of this character. And we barely see her until the end again. But it's like, we painted the character. We understand exactly what his relationship is. We see everything we need to know about these people in the first three minutes of the film. Well, then in that context, it makes sense why he spends the whole movie looking for a bone. Oh. Oh, let's listen to Alice. Intercostal Clavicle is arriving tomorrow after four years' hard work. Congratulations, my boy. Oh, isn't it great? I can hardly believe it. Oh, Alice. Stop mm. it. Really, David, there's a time and place for everything. What would Professor Latouche say? After all, my dear, you're getting married tomorrow. Yes, I know we are. Oh, yeah, really. that's right. We're getting married tomorrow. Hey, isn't that odd? Two such important things happening on the same day. I think the occasion calls for a celebration. Oh, don't you worry, Professor. We're going to celebrate. We're going to go away directly. We've been married. Going away? Why, what are you thinking of, David? After receiving this time? Oh, well, we planned Why, it. as soon as we're married, we're coming directly back here and you're going on with your work. Oh, well, Alice, do you Now, I... once and for all, David, nothing must interfere with your work. Oh. oh. Our marriage must entail no domestic oh. entanglements of any kind. You, you mean, you mean... I mean of any kind, David. Oh, well, Alice, I was sort of hoping... Well, you mean, you mean children and all that sort exactly. of thing? Exactly. Oh, oh. It's so brutal. It's so great. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard... I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. What's so interesting to me, and maybe Amy, you can help fill this in for me, but Howard Hawks is not known for doing this type of film, right? I mean, he seems to have gravitated to a story that appeared in a magazine. uh, And he's like, I want to do this. This made me laugh out loud. I want to make this. And then changed a lot of specifics, you know, added the dinosaur stuff and the, and they even, even the dog with a bone or something he saw in a, 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 a cartoon strip in the paper. He's like, let's buy that from that guy. We'll put that in our movie. But, you know, and he does Only Angels Have Wings, which is, a you know, like prisoners who become, it's a sister act essentially, but, you know, it's, it's like a priest version of sister act. But, you know, again, I just, he doesn't strike me as the guy making comedies. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things on that, like, 
the person he wrote the script with, or not, he didn't write the script with, but the person who wrote the script is a guy named Dudley Nichols who also never did comedy. So this is people who didn't do comedy making this movie. Mm. But then again, Howard Hawks, you know, we talk a lot about like the auteurs and the people we've elevated. He's probably the last one to become really famous in our generation because he did tons of different types of movies because he wasn't a guy who really painted himself as an auteur. I mean, his story is really interesting, by the way. Like, and this first fact I'm going to say is very important, especially when it's a person who started his career like in the early 20s and then survived in Hollywood past the Great Depression. So Howard Hawks was born super rich. He was born to a rich family. He was born into privilege. He was the oldest kid of five kids. And he was this guy who was just a wealthy, daredevil, independent man. Like, he loved independence. He was one of the first Americans to race cars. He flew planes. I mean, he's just, he's kind of James Cameron-ish in that kind of, here I am, I'm an American, I'm an all-American man, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to dive to the bottom of the sea. That's Cameron. Or but if you're Hawks, it's like, I'm going to fly. Blah, right. Blah. So then what happens is he goes to Hollywood. He gets his degree first, actually, in mechanical engineering. He plans to be a mechanical engineer. And then he kind of falls in love with the process of making movies, but he does it in a way that is very much like being a mechanical engineer. He found all these pieces he liked, he found a pace he liked, and he did these really fast fleet movies that felt like his, but only if you were paying attention. Got you know, it. it's sort of like looking at, I don't know, a machine that makes action figures and a machine that makes army tanks. And what comes out of them look totally different, but the machines themselves, you know, they whirl, they click, they have the same sort of oil and gas and smell to them. That's how his films feel to me. There's a really good book on him by Todd McCarthy, and he has this line that I love, where he says that that Hawks had, quote, the mind of an engineer, but the subconscious of an artist. And so because of all of this, oh, he do, he's a guy who doesn't like sentiment, which turns into him being, I think, sort of an accidental feminist, even though he really is a conservative guy at heart, because he just didn't have tolerance for sentiment and he didn't have tolerance for weak sort of women. So he made all these strong female characters who just went into male spaces, were always running into, say, like an, a newspaper office, like His Girl Friday, well, dominating his, all of these things. But it was just because that was his personality and the kind of woman he liked. That's so interesting because I wonder if because he was so mechanical, you know, he just automatically assume that, you know, well, men are never going to be silly and goofy. And that allowed these women to create these amazingly fully interesting performances. Like they really are, they're great character pieces. I mean, was it Rosalind Russell is in uh, His, His Girl, Girl Friday, Friday and she's yeah. fantastic. I did a script reading of His Girl Friday and that script was massive. Uh, we did a script reading of it with Jason Reitman and it was Jason Bateman and Anne Hathaway playing the two roles. And what I found so fascinating is that that script, which was, let's just say like 200 pages, clocked in at 90 minutes. Because if you hit that pace, you fly through those pages. And that would be something that you would never make a movie like that now. You couldn't, you couldn't script it that quick. But I, I love that he was able to understand that, yes, a script is 200 pages, but it's going to come in at 84 minutes. It's going it's to be tight. Yeah, it feels like that same brain of a guy who would take apart cars for fun. Like, how can I make this go faster? Right. What can I do? How can I make this zoom? And what's so interesting is you look at his huge body of work. And I mean, the number of films he has on the list are only rivaled by the number of films he surprisingly doesn't have on the list. But there's Rio Bravo, His Girl Friday, there's The Big Sleep, there's Scarface, there's I Love Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. That's mm -hmm. probably one of my favorite ones. There's Sergeant York. I mean, he, The Thing, oh my God, The Thing. He did The Thing from Another Planet. He's all over the map. And actually, to tie this into our last episode, when I was doing some research, I found out that while Quentin Tarantino was in Amsterdam writing the script for Pulp Fiction, yeah. 
There was a Howard Hawks retrospective in Amsterdam, and he went and he watched every single movie oh, again. Wow. And he was he had that in his head while he was writing Pulp Fiction. I think specifically Rio Bravo, but just that whole tone of just making things fast and making things click. Yeah, it really is um, similar in the way they play out because also Pulp Fiction is not a cutty movie. Like, you know, he's Quentin Tarantino, fantastic director. And I think, like we talked before, his style gets more evolved. But Pulp Fiction is a lot of long medium, two shots of people just talking and having a rhythm and a pace. But this movie kind of hurts Howard Hawke's career, definitely hurts Catherine Hepburn's career. They call her box office poison. And he was going to make Gunga Din. And that's why he made this movie to begin with, because Gunga Din was taking too long to make. He's like, well, I'll do this on the side. Then this movie comes out and then he doesn't get to make Gunga Din. Like, how long does it take for him to like kind of come back into the fold? Well, the interesting thing about Howard Hawks, and this is why I led with he was really, really rich, Mm -hmm. is because he had this way of walking into any office in Hollywood and just being this patrician, old American family, Mayflower, born and bred kind of guy, you know, just real upper class. And he would walk into these rooms with producers and they knew that he didn't need to work for them. And he made it very clear he didn't work for them. And something about his demeanor was so intimidating that I think it is what enabled him to build this really disparate career and to do all these interesting things he wanted because he always let people know he could walk away at any time. Right. And that was also Catherine Hepburn's secret in a way. You know, part of why she became labeled box office poison after this is because the studio was like, you know what, we're going to put you in this bad movie, you know, kind of as punishment. And she said, no, I'm wealthy and I will use my money to buy out my own contract and I won't do that. Wow. Because they were all in this moment of kind of figuring out what independence looked like. Because also part of this whole story is that Cary Grant, in the whole studio system era, in this moment in the late 30s, it was super rare to do what Cary Grant did, which is not be part of a studio. He would sign contracts. He would say, I'll do three movies for you. I'll do four movies for you. But he would never let himself be owned outright, which is incredibly rare and was kind of unpopular. Like the rumor is, is right around this time he did The the Awful Truth, this comedy, and everybody in that movie was nominated but him. And the kind of gossip on it is he wasn't nominated because he wouldn't be a team player. Well, it seems like the way he built his films was almost by collecting other pieces from other studios. Like everyone was on loan from here and over here. And like he really cast outside of the studio system. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't a team player for the studio. He he was basically like, I'm going to make the best thing for me. You know, one of my favorite Howard Hawks films uh, is Ball of Fire. Have you ever seen Ball of Fire? I've actually never seen Ball of Fire. It's a great movie. It came out after this. um, And it's about a bunch of nerdy um, English majors. They're basically making a dictionary and they're led by Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck comes into this house. It's almost like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, you know, but a uh, very broad comedy. That's how I kind of fell, fell in love with Barbara Stanwyck. I think she's, I mean, everything that she does, I, I just think she's such a hilarious person and so great in film. But that's another another great example of, I guess I'm talking myself out of the fact that I don't associate him with comedy, but it's so funny. I think of him more as the big sleep or when I think of him, I think of him like John Ford. It's true. And you know what is really curious about him as a person is that this is a guy who even his best friends or closest friends or closest acquaintances, whatever they might even feel comfortable calling themselves, said, I still feel like I don't know this guy very well. You know, Mm. that he kept himself a little remote. He had these apparently icy blue eyes and you just didn't really feel comfortable being around him being like, hey, tell me your deepest secrets. Like he wasn't right. like a bourbon and, and chat guy. But there is this kind of interesting fact about his life, which is right before he makes bringing up baby, he was married and his wife goes into a sanitarium for depression and for schizophrenia. And she 
pretty much never comes out. You know, she gets electric shock therapy. And so this is happening in his personal life as he's making this movie that, well, in this clip, is about insanity, maybe. You may have heard me lecture. What do you lecture about? I usually talk about uh, nervous disorders. I am a psychiatrist. Oh, crazy people. We dislike the use of that word. All people who behave strangely are not insane. Is that so? Oh, well, um, would you mind if I asked your professional opinion about something? Not at all. Well, now, what would you say about a man who follows a girl around? Follows her around? And then when she talks to him, he fights with her. Fights with her? Mm -hmm. Is the young man your fiancé? Oh, no, I don't know him. I never even saw him before today. Oh. No, he just follows me around and fights with me. Well, uh, the love impulse in men very frequently reveals itself in terms of conflict. The love impulse? Mm -hmm. Without my knowing anything about it, my rough guess would be that he has a fixation on you. A fixation... No, 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 wait a minute. I can't remember any more than that. A fixation. That's right. The love impulse in man frequently reveals itself in terms of... Conflict. Conflict. I, I love that scene. I love this character. And I love when they come back to this character later on in the film when she said, no, no, there's a, the, you know, there's a leopard on top of your house. He's like, oh, yes, of course. Uh, it's a great scene, but it's kind of sweet in a way that he toys with this idea of insanity and like that he may have seen his wife as this like really effervescent person who wasn't necessarily able to fit into this world. And in a way, it's kind of like a, I mean, I'm I'm really putting a lot into it, but saying like it's kind of like a, a homage to her, like you know how she how she doesn't quite fit in this world. Yeah, the idea that maybe we're all a little insane, or what is insane? Yeah, I mean, he's not a personal guy in the slightest, but that's the sort of moment that when I knew that about his wife, I thought, wow, can you pop that out? Is that one of the most personal moments in one of his films where he's kind of batting around the idea of himself? I wonder what, or I at least wonder what he thought when he was shooting that scene. But again, going back to the improv. And going back to using, you know, what made him laugh, maybe it comes at a time where he wants to laugh. And this person who is so mechanical sits back and goes, you know what? Just keep on shooting. This prison scene is supposed to be five days. It took 12. Oh, my God. Like, you know. I do think that prison scene so long. I mean, it's okay. long, but, it'd be, but, but it just seems, I mean, I have issues with this movie also, but. But there is a sense of play here. I mean, we we're talking about before the uh, right after the scene that you just played, that whole dress ripping scene was something that was inspired by like Cary Grant. Like he was at a theater one night, he ripped his pants, it caught on the back of a woman's dress and he had to follow her around. And Howard Hawks just like loved that. And he's like, well, let's put it in the movie. And and I feel I like that woman loved it, too. <laughs> but I feel like there is a real sense of play here. And maybe this is like the recipe that he needed to take his mind off of something like maybe staying on set and letting the improv go and letting this thing build is more of a, more of a comment on how he was as what he needed. Like this is the medicine that he needed. Like, let's keep on going. Let's shoot more. Let's do more. Let me, Cause I want to laugh. Yeah. Maybe it's hard to think about the real life troubles in your world when you're looking at a leopard and saying, is that going to get me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that leopard's so awesome. I really want to, which leopard. one, the puppet or the real one? The Use that puppet, leopard kind of. Uh, I was just uh -uh. joking, but I mean that. I mean, look, they use so many tricks in this movie, but what I will say that still to this day, when you see that fucking leopard, and it feels like they're in the same room, it is dangerous. It's not like dangerous, like roar that Melanie Griffith movie where You've like seen that. Oh, oh yeah, gosh, that's a, oh, that's yeah. upsetting. The um, book about that is also really good. They have a, uh, a documentary series yeah, on Amazon. Funny. Yeah, but that's but there is a sense of like. Even when he, Cary Grant, has the chair and is 
kind of taunting. I'm like, ah, like this is too, <laughs> like these are actors. But, you know, they were using a bunch of different technology there to like split screens and optical tricks like rear projection. Uh, and but like then I said, the puppet. also just not. Because yes. then Catherine Hepburn's like, I like it. It's fine. I'll hang out with it. Cary Grant's like, get it away. And she's like, eh, it's just a big cat. Well, she's wearing like very heavy perfume to keep the cat kind of in a relaxed state. Yeah, she seemed to really like like the cat more than Cary Grant. I mean, I'm amazed that that works, that, could, that you can put on a lot of perfume and it'll just sate a cat. Because honestly, I look at this cat and I think I want to be in that room. I want to hang out with that cat. But every so often, you know, I have a 17 pound Maine Coon. Mm -hmm. Every so often, my 17 pound Maine Coon will decide he's a predator. And I get scared when he's 17 pounds. Amy, that's giant. Yeah. He's a big guy. He has a little lion cut. And he'll be like, I want to jump on you. I'm just going to attack your legs and you can't do anything about it. And it's a little frightening. It, well, that's just a 17-pound cat. I don't know how much a leopard weighs. <laughs> well, I will tell you that I have a, a child, two of them, and they're in their 40 pounds. And when they want to jump on you, too, if, watch out. I, I literally, like, p- pulled a muscle in my butt because my kids jumped on me. Hey, yeah, you know, <laughs> they don't bite as much as a leopard, but I understand that uh, that fear. Now, listen, uh, Paul, I know that you know that there is one thing I really love on that show, and it is whenever an animal shows up, being like, ooh, animal sounds. I have an excuse to play animal oh, sounds. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah. I think is very fitting here because when you hear the leopard purr, that actually isn't a leopard purring. They were kind of freaked out by the sound of the leopard purring. So instead, they got um, a studio cat and they recorded that and they just magnified the sound oh, of the cat purring. So the purring is not actually a leopard purring. But I wanted to play for you a real leopard call because there's a lot of leopard call in this movie. That is frightening. It is beautiful. And you know what I thought of right when I heard that? Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, wasn't this song recorded by Chester the Cheetah? (laughs) Which is not a leopard, but similar. That's hilarious. That is so funny. (laughs) Do you mind if I play with just one more absolute random animal sound? I would love. I love the animal sound. Thank you. This is just because I found it when I was looking for a good leopard call. Uh, this is an ocelot, and it just sounds like somebody being exercised. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Yikes. Yikes. Don't like that at all. Well, Amy, speaking of uh, animals, did you notice uh, the other star animal in this film? Of course I did. I know you're a big fan of uh, Hollywood dogs. dogs. Yeah. And this is the dog from The Thin Man. Yeah. Uh, I, which I love. I love The Thin Man. Thin Man's such a great film. And I love that this dog, I uh, got to see him do some other work. Yeah, you got to see him wrestle a leopard. Were you oh, losing yeah. your mind? Well, again, scene? I was like, what? how did they do this? Is that real? I think it was real. I think that is actually a dog wrestling a leopard. I have not been able to find any sort of sense that they faked it. I mean... I'm sure back in the day they were like, ah, eh, we could do that. Like, I mean, you know, there wasn't uh, heavy PETA laws at that point, I'm sure. Yes, there were. Really? Yes, there were. So I'm just shocked that they got away with it. Wow. I know. It's it's amazing. I mean, that is a brave dog. I think that dog lived. I mean, the dog definitely lived. What am I talking about? The dog definitely lived. All right, well, let me ask you this. Were there two different leopards in the film? I looked this up because, you know, there's the friendly leopard right. and then there's the aggressive leopard. And I had the same question. I was like... Is that two different leopards that just have two different personalities mm-hmm. than they cast, you know, for type? Or is that leopard a really good actor? Yeah. And from what I can understand, that is both 
roles played by Nisa the Leopard. Wow. I think Nisa did play both leopards. Very Eddie Murphy of Nisa the Leopard. <laughs> It's very clumpish. Um, yeah, I guess you have to give a shout out to Nisa's trainer, Madame Olga Celeste. Okay. Well, I was going to say, you know, one of the things about this film that I think it does it a disservice is the title, Bringing Up Baby. It feels much more aligned with like a title like Father of the Bride or something. It, like, it feels to me like, oh, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn are new parents. That's what you think. And in a weird way, it doesn't, let you in on the fun of what this movie is. I, I, I think it makes it feel a little, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit more domesticated or I don't know. I, I don't like the title for what I saw. I don't know if there's a better title, uh, but it, 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 it definitely, I think creates a different picture. What about bringing up bloodbath? <laughs> Why do you like bringing up? They're not bringing up anything. They're trying to capture baby. <laughs> capture baby would be at least a little bit better. Or like, or just called Leopard on the Loose. I mean, I would see that movie. Like Nobody um, puts baby in the bathroom. <laughs> I know that you think the prison scene is too long, but um, there's one scene that I love in this film, and it's a very long sequence. It's the dinner table scene. Uh, it's such a, there's so much in and out. It's very much like, um, it makes me feel like noise is off or something like that, you know, or, you know, this is the play where everything goes wrong. It, it's, there's so many moving pieces. It, uh, it is well, Susan, bringing... I do hope this time you've come to stay. Oh. Yes, I've come to stay, Ollie. Mm-hmm. We've just been walking, walking up and walking down. Where's that young man going now? He's just going in to take a rest. He, <clears throat> he has to take frequent rests. The doctor says, well... Have you ever had jungle fever, Major? Uh, well, I... Oh, you uh, have. Well, then, of course, you realize how important rest is. Uh, well, of now, course. Now, for Mr. King. Bone, in his case, it's rather difficult because he has two doctors. Oh. One says rest, one says exercise. Which do you prefer? Well, I think that perhaps... Well, neither can he make up his mind. Listen to this. What? It's so funny. It's so much overtalk. She's coming in. She's tripping over furniture. He's running around in the background. It's... It's such a funny scene, and every time we play one of these scenes, I am—we all are getting kind of caught up in watching them. They—they really are solid comedic scenes. Yeah, they're so funny, and I feel like I need to take this moment to give a shout out to Aunt Elizabeth, who's played by May Robson, mm. because May Robson. Fun fact about May Robson: she was born in 1858 which makes her the oldest person who had a really good, solid Hollywood career. Oh, wow. She was the oldest woman to get an Academy Award nomination, which she got for Lady in a Day in 1933, which she lost the Oscar to Catherine Hepburn. So they put their differences aside if they ever had any differences. Right. But I love this idea of a woman who, my God, she was alive during the Civil War. And she is in Bringing Up Baby, which made me realize... I forgot that Catherine Hepburn lived well into the 2000s. Yeah. That Catherine Hepburn was alive for 911. Do you, did you, like, just really thinking about that? Catherine Hepburn wow. was alive for 911. I have been thinking about that all week. Like, something just really strikes me about Why do you call it 911? I don't know. What do we call it? 911. Oh. <laughs> When you said 911 the first time, I was like, what is she talking about? Like, a TV show now? <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Catherine Hepburn was alive for 9-11. But it is crazy. I mean, that's that really is a giant career. Because I feel like when I was growing up, I remember her from On Golden Pond. And it seemed like that was the end of her career. Um, and I guess it kind of was. Did she retire after that, essentially? I'm not totally sure. I mean, I don't know if she did the Audrey Hepburn thing of becoming a charity spokeswoman, which mm-hmm. would seem about right. I mean, 
I was reading her book, um, Me, her autobiography the other day, which is just sort of this kind of fun chaptery stream of consciousy memoir that includes details about her dating Howard Hughes, you know, details about everybody she did in Hollywood. Well, you know, and it's interesting that Cary Grant actually based his performance on Howard Hughes. He was unsure about how to play this character. So he met with Howard Hughes and, 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 and kind of studied him. And also uh, Howard Hawks told him to study like Harold Lloyd. And that's where he got the glasses. Interesting. I didn't realize that they were together, Howard Hughes. Yeah, they were together for two years at the time. Wow. And then actually bringing a baby is maybe part of why they broke up. Because when she bought her own studio contract out from the studio, she decided what she needed to do to get a reset is she was going to go to New York and do theater. And Howard Hughes was like, no, stay on the West Coast. And she said, I'm an independent woman. I think what I need to do for my career right now is go East Coast. And so she writes in her biography about how realizing that was the moment where she chose independence and where she realized she really wasn't made to get married. And of course, you know, there's a bazillion rumors about her love life, Cary Grant's love life. I don't know. I've heard convincing things on every end of it. Sure. Um, But what I do really think is just so notable about her is she really was a woman who wore pants at a time when you weren't supposed to wear pants. She really was this great athlete that I don't think she's gotten enough credit for, her absolute athleticism. You know, Cary Grant was an athlete, too. I mean, he was a circus performer. But her, when she comes in this movie playing golf, I mean, she's a great golfer. And it really shows that she's a great golfer. And I realized that in this movie she did with Spencer Tracy, they actually use golf kind of the way they talk about bones here. As this innuendo. No, lady athlete, properly handled, always a market. Always. I don't think you've ever been properly handled. That's right. Not even by myself. Oh, very few <laughs> brains. Yeah, there's one thing i got to say, though. What? Nicely packed, that kid. <laughs> Here's a fact. Not much meat on it, but what's there is churse. Wow. Yeah, but properly handled. I love it. I mean, but you know, it's interesting, even in that performance of her and my knowledge of her as she goes forward, she never played this kind of bombastic comedic character. Like she's silly is probably not the best word, but she's very alive. Like in, in, and I think she kind of played a little bit more above it. Like she, you know, she was smarter. Like, I think she's a little dumber here, even though she's manipulative. I don't think that she's a dumb character, but a little more wide-eyed, I guess. Wide-eyed is what I'm going after. Yeah, here she's so impulsive. I think she's a little bit less impulsive in, say, The Philadelphia Story, which mm-hmm. is a movie I also really love. I might like it just as much as this, to be honest. Maybe even maybe even more. I can't tell. Because I feel like The Philadelphia Story just really goes maybe even faster than Bringing Up Baby. Whenever I watch Bringing Up Baby, I'm always surprised that there's some sequences where I'm like, eh, I, I could lose a couple minutes here. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk to you about this because... We obviously both like this movie, and the performances are great. I'm being sucked in and rewatching it. But I'm not entirely sure this, like in a list where comedy is at such, um, you know, a, a minimum. Like, you know, it's so hard to find good comedy. This is a, a very good comedy, but is this representative of one of the best comedies? I don't know. I, and, and I don't say that in a way that is like pulling it down. I I would recommend everyone watch this. It's incredibly funny. It works still. But the same way we were saying, like, do we need two Marx Brothers movies on this list? Do we need this? Like, are there better versions of this movie? I I would even, one of the things I would point to about this movie that I have a slight issue with is like, you talked about it earlier. Like, this is a movie, a comedy done by people who didn't really do comedy. And for a list that has so few, I would love to see more comedy represented on the list. This is higher than Pulp Fiction. This is higher than Do the Right Thing. 
I don't think it deserves that placement. I know we're kind of jumping forward a little bit, but um, and that's something that's not to debase this film. It just sort of feels like I don't know if this is the epitome of it, I, you know, of of this style of comedy. And we could take it in two ways, you know, odd couple comedy, like uh, like you could go again, planes, trains, automobiles, or you can also do something that is more in the vein of after hours, uh, you know, pretty woman, that kind of a thing, you know? Um, I feel kind of the same way. I feel this mix of protectiveness towards this film. Like if somebody came in here and they said, get rid of it, I'd be like, how dare you, good sir. But then me sitting here, there's other movies I love, maybe even more like Trouble in Paradise by Lubitsch. There's a lot of stuff like that that's not on this list But what about current stuff? I mean, we have such low representation of movies that until, you know, this list came out, like there's a lot of great comedy that could be on this list. I know that Shallow Howl is one of your favorite movies, right? Absolutely. I'm such a shallow Amy. <laughs> no, but, you know, there there are so many, um, you know, I mean, I'm joking now, but I just, as I said that, I'm like, oh, wow, like something about Mary. I'm not, I'm not saying that that movie should be on this list, but another movie very heavily kind of inspired by this film. It's the same type of, you know, dynamic, this wonderful flighty girl, this guy just getting caught. I mean, there's different reasonings behind them, but yeah, the DNA of this film is the strongest element I would say about it instead of it being one of the best comedies of all time. Yeah. I mean, I love there's something about Mary. Yeah. I, I love that movie. It's a I will really stand up for funny that movie, movie today. I think the movie is amazing. I think Cameron Diaz is still one of like the best discoveries that we couldn't quite figure out what to do with her for, yeah. for a while. Still well, maybe haven't, but she really is, I think, such a better actress and comedian than people give her credit for. Oh, she can really turn it up. I mean, and look, to go down that fairly brother path, I mean, you know, I mean, Dumb and Dumber, if you want to talk about two really screwball characters, I mean, that that movie is oh, is is really like confounding in that way. You know, it's like it's like, whoa, like you see Jeff Daniels doing this and you see Jim Carrey. Like, and also, though, you really do see this bringing up baby influence. I mean, for Decades to come. I mean, of course, the most famous one, it's his birthday week, Peter Bogdanovich, putting a lot of the DNA into What's Up, Doc. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which, by the way, was also written by our old buddy, Robert Benton of Bonnie and Clyde. There's a, there's a lot of great examples of really big characters, funny characters, grounded characters. There, there's so much to pick from. If you were to like say, like, just give me a screwball comedy. And I think when we think of screwball, we only think of 1940s. That rat-a-tat-tat, that da 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 black and white. But... We are still making screwball comedies. It's just slightly different changes to it. I mean, you know. And also still the same. You know, it's a genre, it's a genre that doesn't get a ton of respect at the time, and it's a genre that doesn't get a ton of respect today. Yeah, I mean, this movie, like we said, it was a flop when it comes out, but people watch it more and more, and it becomes a bigger and bigger hit. And we see it happening all the time. It's home video. It's, it's, it's the um, MacGruber is a great example of this, you know, a movie that kind of flops and is pound for pound. One of the funniest movies I've seen. Like it's just, it's, it, it's so good, but it's, it's hard because you can't argue this. You're going to, when you're, you're going to get defensive when you say, take this off the list. Well, it's, it's Cary Grant. It's Catherine Hepburn, but you would, you know, it's, it's a, it's a much harder argument than if you, if you were to like argue to get Dumb and Dumber on this list. You could be like, well, no, that doesn't belong on the list. Exactly. Tropic Thunder. Right. But what's the difference? I mean, what's the difference? This movie is insane. This movie is silly. It's There's nothing elevated in this movie. It is a comedy. It's a pure comedy. It's like a Marx Brothers movie. But yet we 
like hold up our 1940s comedies as if they are this gold that is nowhere near what we're producing now. And I, I, I think that that's like a bullshit move. I, I, I think we are producing or have produced really great comedies, but yet it's so easy to be like, well, no, but the Marx Brothers. Oh, but no, but Harold Lloyd. And, and yes, yes to all, but also yes to now. Yeah, I wonder why it is so easy for us to roll up and not fight for something. Yeah. You know, not fight for the modern comedy. Because it does feel like it's the first genre that we're going to be like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah. You know, we, it's like, it feels like when you fight for modern films, they're the serious ones. We did an old canon episode once where we did a very cruel versus of There Will Be Blood versus Boogie Nights. Mm. And the voters overwhelmingly went for There Will Be Blood. And I was like, Boogie Nights is a superior film. And I will say that till I die. Boogie Nights is amazing. And I want to fight for even like the light comedy. Like the com- there's comedy in that. There's everything in that. I think oh, Boogie that movie Nights is, is amazing. One of the most perfect films ever made. But because There Will Be Blood looks like an important film, it gets the vote. I mean, I agree with that. I think that it's hard to tell people why you like something that's funny because sense of humor is the most subjective thing. And you can have people. Literally thousands of people night after night going to watch something like blue collar comedy tour, right? Now, when I was growing up, that was the biggest thing. I love Ron Wood. I'm not as big of a fan of Larry the Cable Guy, but I can't tell you that Larry the Cable Guy isn't funny if you go see him and you love him. Like, people want to hear Get Her Done, great. People who like John Mulaney and Patton Oswalt might be different than the people who like, you know, Sebastian Maniscalco. Like, it's like they're. It's not saying that that special is funnier than that special or Eddie Murphy isn't as funny as Jerry Seinfeld. It's where do you draw that line? It's like, no, what makes you laugh? And I think because these movies are so old, we can appreciate them and we're not looking at them as comedies. We're like, no, no, no. That is, yes, that's funny and it's quaint and good for that movie. But it's not like, uh, I think that's why these, that's why we're seeing such a, a lack of comedy and then B, why these other movies are kind of elevated like this. Well, you know, maybe one thing we can do to keep this conversation going is we actually have the Philadelphia story, the movie that I do like as much. I th- In my memory, I like as much, if not more, better than this coming up. It'll be interesting to stack those two Catherine Hepburn movies together. And but, we get Jimmy Stewart again. I know. I love that so guy. Which is so great. Yeah. Gotta love that guy. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of the modern comedy, I want to play one that's modern-ish that when I was watching it, I thought, oh man, I never really put that together that I think this could be bringing a baby before. Let's listen. <laughs> Phil, do not go in the bathroom. Yeah, will you put on some pants? Phil, there is a tiger in the bathroom. What's going on? There's a jungle cat in the bathroom. Okay, okay, I'll, go check, go I'll, check, I'll, I'll check it out. Go, go in, go, go in. Be careful, don't, don't. Oh, he's not kidding, there's a tiger in there. I mean, look, there's so much of this DNA all over and the hangover, another kind of quintessential film. I wonder if the hangover makes the list at some point because of... I think what it represents in comedy, although, you know, super bad. I mean, there's so many, there's so many great comedies. Um, it's true. By the way, speaking of like micro generational changes, yeah. you know, in the bringing a baby bathroom scene and their bathroom scene, 
you know, she says, oh, no, Baby really likes that song. And she starts playing that song, I Can't Give You a New Thing But Love, yeah. Baby. And I noticed when she played it this time, she kind of had this offhand joke like, oh, I know, it's so silly he likes this song because it's so old. It was oh, like, a- not that he likes the song, but because it's such an old song. And so I looked it up because I was wondering, how old is it? You yeah. know? And it was a song that was a big hit in 1928, which oh, would wow. mean if we did Bringing Up Baby today, it would be a hit from 2009. Like, say, wow. Poker Face. Or single ladies. <laughs> well, or like my, my leopard. She loves single ladies. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny that the movie was delayed because they couldn't get the rights to that song. They had to wait to get the rights to that song. So they wasted like a week just sitting around being like, hope we get it because that's our movie. But it's so funny that they wanted that song. They couldn't just have another song at the ready. But that kind of shows that Howard Hawks definitely had a thing that he, <laughs> it wasn't just any song. Actually, you know, on the note, I kind of want to play a bit where everybody sings this song. We talked a bit in the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf episode about that moment where George and Martha sing in harmony. And I like that here we have a scene where all four of our people who are just clashing dog versus leopard, man versus woman are all singing in harmony. And I want to listen to it. And I also want you to imagine what if they were singing the Black Eyed Peas Boom Boom Pow. I can't give you any. Well, sing, David. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I can do, baby. Dream a while, scheme a while. I'll find happiness and I guess all those things you always I love that. It's uh, By the way, that scene comes like right after one of my favorite scenes, which is when they fall in the water. Then they set up camp, dry all their clothes, and then continue the movie. It's such a weird moment. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, are they camping out for the night? No, they just set up a fire to dry their clothes to then, like, for continuity's sake or something like that. So it wouldn't be wet for the rest of it. It's such, I mean, this movie does so many bizarre turns and it all does come together. But there's something really naturalistic about this movie, even in its craziness like that song is how you would normally sound if you all tried to sing like that like i don't know there's something so in the absurdity of it there's something naturalistic about it too yeah what i love about that about that campfire scene is how it's just one of the other perfect examples about how she never takes responsibility for anything that goes wrong and just sort of as she's putting his sock in a fire casually comments oh your sock's on fire yeah and then her instant solution is just to burn the other one Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Paul, it is time for us to talk to our guest, and we have a really, really, really special one. Her name is Jennifer Grant, and that last name sounds familiar because she is Cary Grant's only daughter. She wrote a book about him that I found really beautiful. It's called Good Stuff, A Reminiscence of My Father, Cary Grant. Mm. And we're going to talk to her about her dad, about who he was as a person, because he quit acting when she was born, and he just dedicated the rest of his life to raising her. And so her memories of him are really beautiful. Let's talk to Jennifer. 
So, Jennifer, I am so excited to talk to you about your book, Good Stuff, Reminiscence of My Father, Cary Grant. This is a really beautiful memoir. And, you know, the way that you structure this book is it's structured by a thing that happened a few years before you actually began writing that your stepmother, Barbara, she said, it is time for you to go to the vault, which is your dad's archives. He had all of these cassette tapes and videotapes and photos and documents, all of these memories that he had kept throughout his life, you know, a lot about his own life, a lot about your life, a lot of that reminded him of you. And so this book is... You know, organized sort of as though you're working through all of these boxes and working through your memories of him before he died and working through a lot. And just tell me about that. Tell me about tell me about this process of writing this book and going through this history. You know, I thought about doing something, some kind of tribute to dad, but I honestly didn't really want to share him with the world. Um, the, the intimate side of him that I knew as, as his only child. And I always knew that I had this uh, this vast amount of material, these amazing resources, but I I kind of wanted to hoard them, <laughs> is the truth of the matter, because so much of Dad was available to everyone, you know? I felt like, um, to a large extent, Dad wasn't ours. He was, you know, the world in a really beautiful way, in a way that I'm very proud of. But he was—he kept our privacy so sacrosanct that um, I tended to do the same. So when a couple of people talked to me about how beautiful it would be to do some form of tribute, um, it, it took me a while. It took me a while to to think that that was a good idea. And I mean, you do such a good job of really being honest in capturing this portrait of your family growing up. You know, that you really get get a chance to talk about all these normal touchstones that you had. You know, you had a station wagon, you got to play in your backyard, you got to play board games, you had a strict curfew. And then every so often there's these surreal things that pop in, that your house was on the movie star maps and that you knew Neil Armstrong and that you used to stay at Princess Grace's house in Monaco. I mean, it... Did you know as a child that you had this mix of surreal and normal happening? I guess the, tr- the truth is I still don't know what normal is. Um, even if you're in touch with kind of the real world, let's call it, I, I, there's still a lot of buffer around your person in, in that kind of a life. That sounds sort of like how you describe your dad's own process, that you, when you were looking through all this stuff, you... You know, there's this idea of him kind of reconciling being Archibald Leach and then Cary Grant, you know, the autobiography mm-hmm. he was considering writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the outside, we know about things like the quest for to discover himself with self-hypnosis and LSD. And this, you really capture this idea of a man who you say was sort of interested in making sense of his life and that you feel like he was able to make sense of it at the end. I think so. Even his success was part of a real quest to become himself. Uh, he's a very smart man. Um, he could even, honestly, he even could have been an artist. Um, just if, you, if you've ever seen his printing, he has this beautiful script. It's sort of a, a cross between handwriting and print. And he, he, does, he did little doodles, too. And even his musicality, which is shown in his humor and his movement, but on the piano, he taught himself to play piano. Uh, so he was very talented across the board, really. 
he didn't have a great sense of taste <laughs> in terms of food. I mean, he, didn't, he couldn't tell the difference between things. So that was one area. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways you mentioned that he's critical of his own work and that, you know, he retired when you were born so he could really focus his attention on you. And he loved you so mm-hmm. much and that he didn't really talk that much about his life as an actor before you. But could you still watch your movies with him or did he not really want to be in the room for that? We didn't, we didn't watch his movies, no. Um, once we watched one of his movies because his friends in the Hamptons happened to be playing it. And, yeah, we watched part of An Affair to Remember. But other than that, we really did not watch his movies at all. It's such a pleasure for me to sit down and watch his movies now. Um, I do it infrequently, but when I do, it, it, he's, he's just so beautiful and so funny and so wonderful. Do you, you see know, the dad that miss you... Them. I'm sure that's why I don't watch them more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you see the dad that you knew in those characters? Yes, very much. Um, when he would look back on his early films or speak about his early films, he thought he was so over the top. They embarrassed him completely. Um, he would make big gestures, you know, and they were great. Um, but they were more in the style of, you know, he came up being an acrobat. And it's that grand theatrical gesture as opposed to, you know, the honed filmic moment. Um, and I think I knew the honed version you know, of, of Cary Grant, um, in his comedic timing, in his, the depths of him. Um, he was also a super serious man. You know, he wasn't just funny. Um, but he, he knew how to, how to, um, I want to say like fragrance life with those comedic notes. I mean, I love picturing this generation gap that you guys had. I mean, this image that you paint in the book of you driving Mm -hmm. to, say, Fox Hills Mall, and you have Foreigner or Led Zeppelin on the radio, and he's listening to them. (laughs) God, it just took me back. Yeah. In the powder blue, Jennifer blue Cadillac that he used to drive. He got the powder blue car because when we went to the dealership at Cadillac, it said Jennifer Blue on this powder blue color, so he got it. I mean, you. I love that you say in the book, you kind of lay it out really clearly at the top, that you have made the choice to never read a biography of him. You know, and, and in part that was at your dad's request that he asked you several times that you remember him the way that you remember him. Because after his death, he was worried that people would say things about him and he wouldn't be there to defend himself. And what, what, mm-hmm. what, do, you, do, you, what do you think he was worried about? I think he, he probably judged himself I, I know he did. He was so, so hard on himself. If he was unkind to someone, even just vocally, um, a little terse with someone, you know, he thought about it and why. And um, so Lord knows, I'm sure there were things in his life that he didn't want all over the news, as anyone would have. Yeah. I think he just wanted me to know him the way I know him because because I knew him so well, you know, because he retired when I was born, because he spent all of his time with me. 
it's like knowing really, really good food and then having bad food next to it. You just don't need to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that sounds terrible, but it's true. You write in your book about this dream you had two nights before your father died. And Mm. I was wondering if you could tell the story for us. We had gone to sleep. Um, I was I was home from Stanford for a break, and my boyfriend was actually in the house as well. And he was sleeping in my room, and I was sleeping um, down the hall from Dad and Barbara. Um, and we we'd been playing a board game that night in Trivial Pursuit, and we'd all gone to bed rather early. And I had this. Uh, this dream that um, dad and I were on a cruise in the dream. We were doing some like games and we were painting on this one velvet canvas that we were painting on. And a man came up to my dad and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you know, it's time to go to your room. And dad said, okay. And he went and I was very nervous about this. I, 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 but I waited a little while, and when I got to the room, oh, this is, this is, um, I don't even know how much of this I wrote, but when I, when I got to the room, um, the man had his hands on Dad's shoulders, and Dad was bowed, and Dad was throwing up blood, and the man was Jesus. It, it was definitely Jesus, and I'm not a religious person, but this was the man who brought the message in the stream, and um, my dad looked at me and said, it's okay. And I knew it was okay, but I, it also was painful. And I woke up like right away, and I sat up, and I knew that if I didn't go tell my boyfriend right away that I would feel crazy the next day. And I went and just cried in my boyfriend's arms for a while and went back to sleep. And two nights later, that that was how my father passed. He actually had a stroke and and he went back to his room and um, Barbara was there with him, his wife. And he, he went to his knees and he was vomiting blood. And oh, sorry, that's a terrible thing to share, but... That was the dream, and that was the reality. Did the dream bring you a bit of peace, feeling like you saw that he was in good hands? You know, in a way, um, the, the foreshadowing or the circularity of it did did give me a sense of peace. And in a way, in my overcritical way, there was a part of me that wondered if there was something I should have done, you know, if I could have prevented it somehow the precognitive aspect has that there's a certain responsibility with it as well. It it means a lot to me that you're sharing these memories. It, Mm. it means a lot to me that you wrote this book, you know, I mean, I, (laughs) I, I'm an only child whose father also passed um, around the same time. And I very Mm. much get that idea of love and, and possessiveness. And I get how beautiful it is that you've shared all of this, and yeah, it, it reminds me of when you write about sharing this coat that you had made for your dad after he passed, that you had this great cashmere coat made for your dad, and 
you saw a homeless man one day and you just gave it to him and that you have complicated feelings about it in a way, but that the giving, I think, is really beautiful. I think, thank you. Um, I think that's, that's just part of that. To me, that feels like a gesture of dads almost, you know, um, maybe understanding his roots. He used to always say, uh, you know, don't choose a man based on his position in life. Like, you never know. You might meet a good man who might need, you know, understanding and and love and may not have wealth or position or... um, And I think while he was meticulous and driven and careful, he wasn't... He didn't dislike himself. He wasn't running from someone he disliked. Does that make sense? It does. You know, he would have taken the coat off his back and given it to someone who was cold. Whereas, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just kind of imagining this now, but I'm, I'm imagining someone who didn't have respect for all stations would be angry at that person, you know, who doesn't have a coat at the beach. Get your own coat type attitude. I mean, if you don't mind me sharing a story for myself, it reminds me of my dad was also incredibly generous and incredibly giving and incredibly beloved. And I remember being at his funeral and I feel like he told me this because this entire thought just popped into my head, like unbidden all at once, completely coherent and much more grown up than I could have come up with at the time. And he said you know, look around at all of these people in the room and if every one of the people in this room is even 1% more like me in honor of me, 1% more generous or 1% more open, 1% more loving of strangers, then it's like I never left. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That, your, your story reminded me of that and I think about that all the time and that's exactly the kind of thought my dad would have told me and, and I believe oh, it. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Enhance, enhance the good. It, it, it leads you to that. It leads you to that noticing and, and growing. That, that's beautiful. I, I do feel like you writing this book help, helps make your dad more real. You know, it helps show parts of him that people like me who only know him through the movies didn't get to see. I'm glad. That's, that was a large part of my aim. It, it really was and elucidating this man, just, yeah, shining light on who he was at home and how beautiful he was to know. I loved reading about how much he loved you. <laughs> thank you. Well, Jennifer, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on this show and for talking to us about your life. I know that's a lot to ask of anybody, so thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time today. So, Amy, I know we've, we've danced around it a little bit, but um, this movie didn't do well. But how was it responded to by critics? I mean, were there, I mean, I don't even know, was this film reviewed well? It was reviewed pretty well. It got majority, like, fairly good reviews. And then there was this review by Frank S. Nugent of the New York Times. To the music hall yesterday came a farce which you can barely hear above the precisely enunciated patter of Miss Catherine Hepburn and the ominous tread of deliberative gags. 
In bringing up baby, Miss Hepburn has a role which calls for her to be breathless, senseless, and terribly, terribly fatiguing. She succeeds, and we can be callous enough to hint it is not entirely a matter of performance. So he went hard on Hepburn, did not like her, was not charmed by her. And then what he does in the rest of the view is he lists every single plot beat, like every single thing that happens, but he lists them in this like huge block of text that's all in this kind of structure of, did you hear the one about the trained leopard and the wild leopard who get loose at the same time? And he's just listing these things off as though they're common things that apparently were happening in every single movie he was watching. And then he concludes by saying, after five minutes, we are content to play the game called, quote, the cliche expert goes to the movies. And we are not at all proud to report that we scored 100% against Dudley Nichols, Hagar Wilde, and Howard Hawks, who wrote and produced the quiz. Of course, if you've never been to the movies, Bringing Up Baby will be all new to you, a zany-ridden product of the goofy far school, but who hasn't been to the movies? So he's basically like, wow. we got a movie like this every week. Why do I care? It's so interesting. I mean, there is a world where that may, I mean, maybe that was true, right? I mean, but then the good ones stick around, you know? Like, there's certain trends that we see in film all the time. I love that. I mean, I can't speak to it because I don't know what he's been seeing, but it seems like he's not lying. It's yeah. not like I, it's just, I mean, I love this idea of being like, got another leopard movie with one leopard that's cool and one le- leopard that's mean. How many times I got to see this? <laughs> Jesus, another leopard movie? I mean, I want to do some research. Is anyone out here who listens to the show, can you show us other leopard movies with two different uh, uh, personality leopards? I'd like, I'd like to watch another. Yeah, I mean, there was a cheetah trend happening in Hollywood. Like, mm-hmm. Josephine Baker had a cheetah. But okay. it wasn't like a leopard on every block, you know? I don't, I don't know what the leopard deal was. Well, all right. Well, Amy, I think we've talked about a lot of it. I mean, whether or not it belongs on the list, it's pretty low on the list. Uh, we'll kind of revisit this discussion when we talk about Philadelphia's story. But the only question I haven't really asked you is, and I think it's going to be a hard one to answer, did The Simpsons make any reference to this film on The Simpsons? You're going to have to follow my stream of consciousness and logic here, okay. all right? Because what I'm going to do is not going to make a lot of sense. Here's the thing. I could not find a Simpsons, but there was a Simpsons comic. You know, the Simpsons do comics. Yes. They did do a comic called Bringing Down Baby. That's about baby Maggie saving her enemy, baby Gerald. So there's that. Okay. But what I decided to do instead is, so I would have a clip to play, is I decided to play a clip of a little show called Night Court that also had a do- an episode Night Court. called Bringing Down Baby. And in Bringing Down Baby, this episode of Night Court is about this child actor named Billy who plays a character named Dickie the Kid Lawyer. Okay. And he goes to the night court so he can observe the court and Roz has to babysit him. Billy, this is Bailiff Russell. If you need anything, just ask her. Now, I want you to take good care of our Billy. He's very particular Okay, about- Mom. That's it. It's the road. <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> what a dump. Well, he seems nice. <laughs> Um, what a dump what a dump what a dump Um, well I appreciate that there's some reference to Night Court in there (laughs) gotta do it man some of my beloved ones that means something too well I love Night Court and if you've not uh, seen Fatal Farms recut of the Night Court trailer stop this podcast right now and, and go watch and enjoy it I won't tell you anything more about it all right so Amy I think we've done it right I mean we've talked about everything that we need to talk about except for what we're talking about next week. Yes, next week, we're going to take a little trip to Nashville. Ooh, I've never seen this, and I'm so excited to see it because it is one of those films that I feel like uh, 
it seems like the the quintessential Altman. I've seen other Altman films, but not Nashville. Well, man, strap on your guitar. We're doing it. We're getting into a car wreck on the freeway watching Nashville. All right, so for this episode, what we want you to do is do your own Robert Altman-style monologue that could have been in the film Nashville. And we're going to overlap them and kind of create a an audio collage, an Altman audio collage. This is the first time we're doing something like this, but we'll try it. We'll see how that works. So do your best. You don't have to do a character or monologue from the film, but be inspired by it, and uh, we'll put it together. Let's say... Um, it's a bunch of people waiting in line by the restroom. Uh, that will be your your impetus, and uh, we can kind of all put it together. There's people waiting in line by the restroom in the convention center. All right, uh, you can give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And uh, let's hear a piece of your monologue as we intermix it with everybody else's. All right, Amy, um, just want to remind you and our audience to head on over to our store. We have an amazing store at tpublic.com, tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled, where you can get great shirts like Hannibal Lecter is a zaddy. I love lepers, a shirt that still no one has bought. I just looked the other day. We've sold a lot of other shirts, but no one has bought. I love lepers. Maybe we Uh, should just make I love leopards. Oh, maybe. Uh, so head on over there and uh, and buy some of our merch. And if you want to get one of our amazing follow-along posters, which is designed by Scott Campbell, uh, you can get that at podswag.com. It's such a beautiful poster. People really, really love it. I love it and have it framed, and it's the best. So that's where you can find us on the merch front. And uh, Also, we're going to be at the Alamo Draft House if you oh, live yeah. in L.A. On August 15th. And Amy, I don't want to toot your own horn, but you have an amazing podcast uh, about Quentin Tarantino uh, that is spooling out right now as we speak. (laughs) Yeah, I think the last episode comes out the day this episode comes out. All right. Very exciting. What is it called? It is called Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation. And I sat down with him. We talked about five films he showed at the New Beverly, but I really just used them as a way to get him to talk about his life. I... And so I go into his brain and ah. I love it. <laughs> no. But yeah, oh. it was super, it's super, super fun. It was a really, really fun mental exercise. I am excited to listen. All right, we will see you next week for Nashville. Yeah. Yeah.